0: Ever since I can remember, I never wanted to be a producer. I only became one to protect my work as a director. But life is a funny blackjack dealer, and you never know what cards you'll catch. Being in the game for a minute now, and having worked with brilliant producers, and others who are less so, I've learned a lot about what it takes to produce a great documentary. And what surprises me is that I've come to dig it, both producing my own work as well as projects for other filmmakers. My conversation today is with someone who knows a lot more about the subject than I do. Without a doubt, Simon Chen is one of the great doc producers working today. His films include Searching for Sugar Man, LA 92, and Man on Wire, about which we've done a previous podcast with director James Marsh. He is a fearless, brilliant, and talented producer. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Simon Chen. Well, Simon, welcome to the show. So glad to have you here. Um, I've been I've been looking forward to uh, you know plumbing the depths of your mind for a long time. So so welcome to the show and glad to have you.
1: Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's great to great to be with you and good to meet you.
0: Um, So undoubtedly you have become, you know, one of the great documentary producers of our time. And I guess I'm going to start with, you know, something of a zinger of a question and say, how the hell did you get here?
1: Okay. Um, I can answer that in various ways, but I'm sure you don't want me to start from the very beginning, but I guess let's give you the kind of potted, the short version. I mean, I had a kind of fairly lengthy career working in British, mainly kind of British television as a sort of documentary maker. Um, I mean, I sort of describe it a little bit as a, as, a, as an apprenticeship because mo- most of that time I was sort of working my way through the various, you know, rungs of the ladder, kind of ha- happily on the one hand because it basically gave me the opportunity to have lots of adventures. Um I I had I, I was sort of restless and hungry for adventures. Uh I had actually sort of previous to that sort of when I left university wanted to be a, a foreign correspondent. So journalism was sort of more my where I kind of thought my path was and I actually there was a, a very well known British foreign correspondent who was the dad of my then girlfriend who I sort of wanted to be. Uh, mm-hmm. He was sort of impossibly sort of romantic and figure for me. Uh, and he got killed, unfortunately, very sadly, in, in, in 1989 in El Salvador. And it sort of made me think that probably that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Not Not necessarily because of the sort of inherent danger of it, but more I sort of realized what an unsettled human being he was. In the aftermath of his death and and so i thought that maybe if i got into into documentaries i could sort of parachute into sketchy places and have short adventures and then come home and live a relatively normal life so it can uh, s- scratch both itches if, if you see what i mean um i'd always yeah. imagined i would have a family you know and, and right so, right you know. so um yeah, that's that's sort of what I did. I kind of, you know, I spent a lot of time in, you know, quite dangerous places and, you know, but, but fundamentally, I was always a bit frustrated and a bit impatient to sort of do my own thing. Um, and fundamentally, as a sort of freelance producer, director, whatever I was, assistant producer, I was always to some degree working for someone else and, you know, answerable to to others and sort of serving other people's bottom line that <laughs> I didn't ultimately didn't enjoy that feeling. So I I, I, I I, actually, I guess in about 2003, I got the chance to strike out on my own, partly because I was a company where I was a bit unhappy and they gave me the opportunity to take a voluntary redundancy. And I did so and simultaneously had had heard Philippe Petit on the radio and had kind of It had begun that the idea for the film that became project that became Man on Wire sort of began to percolate at that time. And I thought, okay, this is this is my opportunity to strike out and to sort of do the thing I'd always thought I would might do one day and, and sort of be a bit more master of my destiny. So that's what I did.
0: It's, it's it's really interesting hearing you tell this because it's actually strikingly similar to what my experience was and my background. I was a crime reporter and I, too, wanted kind of that passport to other worlds and felt kind of excessively constricted by what was at the time you know the kind of mainstream network or cable you know confines that you you know the lanes that you have to swim in and and for me it was the seven five you know where it was like okay i really want i want to make a movie there's a way to like do these things great great film by the way oh thank you
1: I, i i love the seven five it's a really yeah really really terrific dynamic propulsive piece of work so Congrats. Um, but, but but yeah, I mean, I totally agree. It's sort of like not only did I want to be doing more my own thing, but also, yeah, I, I fundamentally felt constricted by the sort of formulas of television at that time. Now, I would say that has changed quite significantly. Um, but, you know, at that, at that point, you know, uh, yeah, it felt like it wasn't serving my creative ambition. And and actually, that coincided with me becoming really interested in in, in the form of feature documentaries, uh, and specifically being inspired by, you know, a couple of films, you know, one one of the one of which was uh, one day in September, brilliant. And, and film. The other of which I, th- I think was when we were kings. Th- those two films, which are very yep. very different in form, but I'd seen them both. I think I'd seen them both in the cinema and, and they had been like, I'd be like the kind of scales fell from my eyes a little bit. I was mm-hmm. like, I could maybe do that. And in fact, mm-hmm. I've been working in, 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 in a sort of similar form. Um, you know, I know how to tell those kinds of stories in, in that kind of way, but you know, it was all about, it was you know, for, for me, it was all like the execution of these films. is just wholly different. The kind of whole, the sensibility these are films. So it was cinematic. It was cinematic
0: of instead of television, right? I mean, like in a fundamental yeah. sense, they were movies. They weren't TV programs. They were movies.
1: They were movies, and they kind of they stood up on a big screen. They felt like they justified the movie going experience in a way. And, and I was lucky, you know, uh, to, to to sort of stumble upon, you know, the man on wire story roughly at that time.
0: So, so, so take us through that, right? From the time that you first hear Philippe on the radio, like, and you're kind of hatching the vision for what your new life can be with the inspiration of these films that you've just mentioned as kind of touchstones, what's the kind of process? And like, how do you go about, you know, going from kind of an incohate idea to, you know, sourcing the IP to picking James Marsh? Like, what's, the, what's that process from sort of germ of idea to execution?
1: Okay. Well, the, the the process was, you know, a little bit. I was sort of throwing a whole bunch of shit against the wall and seeing what stuck. I mean, I, I guess to some degree, I was a bit of a, a newbie in this in this space, uh, and I wanted to go on that journey and sort of, you know, sort of embrace the steep learning curve of that journey, and and I sort of had. For whatever reason I had some sort of deep belief in my ability to make it happen at the same time that I also kind of understood I didn't know what the fuck I was doing which is a sort of interesting combination but but I, I sort of found myself basically you know working from home with no job which was quite a happy place to be at that time in a funny way because you know I, I was working I was trying to get I was trying to yeah i was trying i was trying to change my life i mean i was mm-hmm. trying to you know something some you're trying to mold very fun, fun fundamental yeah. way and and i was so i you know basically pursued this and it was basically about getting access to philippe uh petit and getting the rights to his book um but you know quite quickly i realized that that was going to be incredibly challenging because he was working with other producers. He'd been trying to make this doc for some time. Funnily enough, I learned that Kevin MacDonald, who'd made One Day in Interesting. September, ha- had in fact looked quite seriously at the project and sort of discarded it because he felt that, I think he basically felt that Philippe was just going to be too difficult to work with. Right. Um, Philippe had some quite fixed ideas about what he wanted that film to be. And so... Yeah, quite quite quickly I knew it was gonna be incredibly difficult. Um, and I had a I had the opportunity to meet with him in, in, in the UK. He was came to Nottingham to consult on a stage adaptation of his book and I'm and I travelled up to Nottingham to have lunch with him and, and I remember I, I I was got stuck in terrible traffic. So I completely misjudged the journey. I turned up you know, he was on his dessert. Uh, by the time I turned up, he was distinctly <laughs> unimpressed with me. I didn't really have my kind of pitch down even. Mm-hmm. It was a complete screw-up. Mm-hmm. And I sort of kind of left the lunch, you know, literally just kicking myself, just thinking I have ballsed it up and I, and I now need to sort of redouble my efforts to sort of, t- 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 you know. I, I, somehow or other, I, I, I just had the bit between my teeth in a way that I now feel... Because I had nothing, I had no work. I had been made redundant. This is, you know, I had nothing to lose and everything sort of to gain, so I could sort of focus on this task, like almost like I, I sometimes like to think, without <laughs> wanting to sound too melodramatic, like Philippe approaches his wire walks. You know, this is like this is what he needed to see in me, and I and I and I sort of I was getting the, the sense that. 'Cause he had a, a partner then uh in life as well as in business who was sort of his gatekeeper called Kathy O'Donnell. And Kathy was um kind of giving me little hints that, that the other process with these other producers was not really that great. And so I I was being helpfully kind of just nudged by her. And I just you know, I just went for it and I, I had a second meeting with him in Paris. I remember some months later, Kathy had sort of organised for me, and I went to went to Paris and I went to meet him. And I I, I had it was complete. I I, I you know I I was so punctual. I remember turning up at his apartment as, you know, the clock on the bell tower adjacent to his apartment block struck six, and you know I was there. Like he'd opened the door and he was immediately impressed. And I I took him out for this lavish dinner. You know I knew he liked great food. And, the wine, the fine wine flowed, and and I remember a certain point during the dinner, taking out, bringing out. This was all kind of planned by me, bringing out this, you know, very extensive set of notes that I meticulously typed out, and I'd on his book, and and I I'd, I I'd found out from Kathy that he was a very fastidious archivist and color coder. And and I had color coded all my notes, and I was just sort of nonchalantly leafing through the notes as I, ex- you know, sort of expounded my my vision for the film. And he leant over and he was like, "Oh, you're a color coder," <laughs> and, I, and I just I just knew that that was the. I got him. That, I know, got him. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this, so so that was the, that was the kind of process. But then I actually had to enter into a process of. Actually, negotiating the, the rights to to his book, and uh, at a certain point, you know, I realized I had hired a lawyer, and I was spending money, my own yep. money, and, and it yep. wasn't comfortable. And I knew I knew that this process was going to take me a lot longer than I could afford for it for me to, for it to take. So I did at that at that point, I I decided to partner with a with a company that I had spent a lot of my time as a freelancer at a company called Wall to Wall. I'd set up my own company called Redbox Films. So this was me going to Wall to Wall saying, I'm bringing you this project. You know, I don't want to, I'm not giving it to you. This is a different kind of relationship. It's a co-pro. And they were up for it. And they, you know, in, in a way, you know, the, the most important thing to me was that, that I trusted them. And mm-hmm. I believed that they would support the project. And if necessary, support it monetarily while we were sort of doing deals and whatnot. And, but I, but the other kind of thing I was kind of interested in was that they had no experience in feature docs mm-hmm. yep. and I, and it would have been obvious for me to kind of go to a company that was, you know, steeped in, in this world, but I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to give up my, you didn't want to get the, to learning, the, 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 yeah. the learning process. Yeah. It was, it was partly about, I didn't think I'd be marginalized, I were, but I, I actually wanted to learn, you know, I wanted mm-hmm. to learn a lot. And, and so yeah, I mean, they ended up being great partners for me um, on that project. And they did, in fact, cash flow the project very extensively while a lot of deals were being done. So, And that actually enabled me to not lose my director, James Marsh, um, who, again, actually, you know, he kind of emerged because someone, uh, the, a guy called Jonathan Hughes, who was... was um, the executive producer on the project at Wall to Wall sort of mentioned him to me and I had been aware of James but it was sort of a brilliant suggestion and I then called James up and, and James was sort of on his downers uh, actually a bit at the time he was he just finished his first um, scripted feature uh, it was a film called The King I think it had been incredibly arduous to make and it end up being quite a kind of Small piece, um, because it was quite an uncompromising piece of work creatively, and I don't think it was commercially that successful. And I think it's been hard all round. And, and I think James was sort of at that time living in New York, thinking that's probably it for me. I'm done. Um, but the thing that had got turned me on to James was a film that he'd made. I don't know if you're aware of it, called Wisconsin Death Trip.
0: Dude, I love this film. It's so trippy and so original. And, you know, we had James on the podcast, you know, and it's so interesting to kind of triangulate your perspective and the kind of like all all of the, like, this is the story behind the story. You know, there are all these, the stories behind the stories of this legendary film. So it's so fascinating to hear. And also what I was thinking as you were talking is, this is like a case study in great producing. You know, from like that, you know, following a hunch to being sort of ballsy and willing, and to like bet it all to the like courting and the dance that has to take place to partner selection to the ch- choice of director. Um. So keep going, keep going with James in terms of you know, you know, you've seen Wisconsin Death Trip. He's in this funny place yeah, in his career. Yeah, I mean,
1: I I've seen Wisconsin Death Trip, and then I sort of dove a little bit further into. work that he'd done previously i mean he'd he'd kind of come come out of i guess a sort of school of documentary making if you can call it that you know that, that i was quite familiar with you know he'd worked at the bbc he'd worked in a in a strand an art strand called arena um which had been run by this guy called anthony wall who was a kind of bit of a bit of a maverick executive at the bbc who sort of Supported a lot of great work and great idiosyncratic work uh, under that banner arena. And um, James had made some really unusual films uh, in 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 the BBC. He'd made rather brilliant films. He made a film about Elvis and his eating habits called The Burger and the King. He'd made a film called Trouble Man about Marvin Gaye. Uh, And you know. Wisconsin Death Trip is is is, is not a narr a what I would call a narrative film. I mean na- narrative documentary. It's a it's a much more sort of experimental piece of work based on a chronicle of sort of woes in a, in, in Wisconsin. I think in a particular town in Wisconsin, even when in in I think the, was in the 19th century, uh, when a lot of bad stuff happened to that to that community and and he had there was something about the film that was just unlike anything i'd ever seen before and and the kind of knowledge that was made substantially on a kind of arena bbc budget Mm -hmm. just made me even more impressed this was a sort of resourceful imaginative filmmaker um but I didn't know whether the work that I was watching necessarily recommended him for right. this story right you know this this was a story that required a very particular sensibility you know mm-hmm. uh and I just wasn't sure I was gonna f- necessarily find that but I guess if you read Philippe's book, there's something about it that that on the one hand it's a caper right it's a it's a great caper it's a it's a heist it's a, you know, and he writes it very much with that in mind. It kind of reads almost like a, like a, like a movie, uh, like a, you know, like, like he wrote the book as a template for a movie, which I think he did actually. And then at another level, it's this kind of meditation, this, this it's poetic, it's, it's, it's philosophical. It's, it's also kind of childlike. It's like it invites you into the world of this kind of maverick, you know, this guy who's created a world for himself uh you know as, as a lot of geniuses do you know you know that he you know that he wants to preserve and I, and you know and and it does have this sort of childlike mischievous quality this sort of amazing idealism to it actually and i didn't know whether james was that guy um but i i i, I called him up and 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 mentioned the, the the project and you know it was his sort of response to it that just just so impressed me, i mean he I think it's partly because of where he was in his life, you know, I think suddenly to sort of be be offered a project that had all this potential that he could see, he just grasped it, you know, and I think he 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 grasped it both sort of you know in the sense that he just immediately wanted to said he wanted to do it, there was no hesitation about that, but then he sort of grasped it in terms of the creative the, the sensibility, the, the, what, it, what it offered um, based on the material, you know, it, it wasn't like I've got this very particular authorial vision for this film. It wasn't like that. It was sort of like, I get this story. I understand this character. I, I understand this material. I know how to, how to realize that, you know, it's, I think, I think that's, that's, you know, often people refer to auteurs in our in our in our world and you know there are very few real auteurs you know who kind of you know Werner Herzog might be an auteur right because his films are about his signature his voice his yeah him as much as the subject in a fundamental way yeah James is not that kind of director you know and I didn't want that kind of director actually I wanted a director who could serve as the material, see, see the potential of the material, and understand that how how to how to deliver that. And I, you know, to be honest, one of the, the singular most difficult challenges of, of this of the process was going to be how to work with Philippe. You know, Philippe was a I'm very sure. particular individual, and I also had a feeling, a strong feeling, that because of the uh, because I knew the world that. James had grown up in professionally, which was not dissimilar to mine. Mm-hmm. That he and I would be good partners in that, in the service of that, that huge challenge. Actually, which would end up, I think, I, I see certainly in hindsight, becoming the most central challenge of the film was, was how to how to manage this relationship.
0: And, and 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 capture it right because like on the one hand you're having to wrangle the the yeah. performance and, and sort of like uh, or and and him as a as a character and as a sort of this larger than life phenomenon on the and on the other hand you're trying to like capture the performance and embody it in a fundamental way so it's true to him yeah
1: yeah that that that's exactly right that, that's actually really well put because in a way that's me as a producer speaking manage the relationship but but actually. I think what James saw and I thought he understood was that you know his connection with Philippe creatively was critical to sort of pres- preserve somehow or other, even when things were as, about as strained as they could possibly be. And they did mm-hmm. get really, really difficult. I'm sure. Um, that, 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 that actually, you know, that, that, that Philippe, there's a sort of charm in Philippe. There's a sort of there's, there's an a, innocence. There's, a, there's, there's there's an innocence. There's a there's a personality to sort of to love. There's something to love about. He's lovable, and and James never lost that. Even if I may have at times, right. James. Even when you're ready never, to strangle
0: him, you have to you have to keep that love in your heart. Yeah. You know? yeah.
1: And, and also, I think the other thing was that Philippe had ideas. He had ideas mm-hmm. about making the film, and they weren't all bad. I mean, fundamentally, right. if we just gone the Philippe route, I I honestly believe that the film would have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I think James thinks that too. And so a lot of the kind of role was, it was like trying to save the film from Philippe. Right. You know? Right. So it doesn't get hijacked. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I think we really understood that James and I, we understood what the kind of task was here, but I think the kind of thing that maybe James brought, uh, you know, sometimes it was harder for me to see was that uh, actually, there were so sort of creative ideas that, that philippe had that, was that sort could of be extracted brilliant. and actually mm-hmm. there's i don't know if you know that if you remember from the film there are moments where he sort of he's sort of performing his interview, yeah it's vividly you know he, uh, gets yeah. out of his chair and 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 actually that was that was that was philippe's idea I, I remember being deeply skeptical about this and and it was like it would involve us giving up you know another day of filming that you know we hadn't quite budget or whatever and i was. I was a bit nervous about this, but, you know, it was important to let this stuff happen and for us to, quote, lose some battles to win the war. But some of those losses ended up being real significant gains because they brought Philippe to the project as a sort of genuine creative collaborator in the process. And that is something that I I was learning, actually, at the time.
0: So how do you, how have you gone on? And it's, you know, I'm curious kind of in the immediate aftermath of Man on Wire and it's sort of, you know, this like astounding success that it has, you've been able to bottle this kind of again and again, or sort of find these stories and collaborators and, you know, from Sugar Man to The Imposter to LA 92 to like, what is your process, and and how did you sort of capitalize on the success that you had, and and sort of carefully husband this for 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 the for the future? You know, how do you marshal a career over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's evolved. I have to say. I mean, I, I think one of the kind of big errors I made after Man on Wire was not really spending the, the time during the making of it developing a slate you know right. for what yeah. for whatever i wasn't quite yet in the mindset even though i wanted to be of being a kind of independent producer and um and i i i kind of like got back from Sundance you know euphoric you know we'd won the two big prizes we 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 done a a deal uh a theatrical with a theatrical distributor uh, you know we were selling a film you know, to other, other buyers, you know, it was very exciting all, all of that, but I didn't really have my next project lined up and it was kind of a scary moment. And um, I, I sort of thought to myself, okay, well, you know, the, 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 the most sort of obvious next step for me is to find another project to do with James, you know, it'd been a good partnership. And, and I felt that that you know, uh, I felt he was open and, um, I sort of look, started looking, and we were talking about lots of things. It took a while, and, and actually my wife, Lara, who we were fairly newly married, well, actually she was quite heavily pregnant with our first child, and she I came down for breakfast one morning, and she was reading this article in a magazine and crying, and it was the story of Project Nim, uh, which is the story of this chimpanzee who was taken away from its mother at birth in 1972 and kind of given to a human family to bring up as part of a kind of crazy scientific experiments to try and demonstrate that language was not uniquely human uh, a, 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 a a huge sort of um scientific endeavor that seems nuts now but at the time was considered to be a very very important groundbreaking study um and the project nim story i mean it's just a extraordinary story and and I had had no real sense that that this would be something that James would be into but I I I sent it to him and he was immediately just totally taken with it and you know um so you know I thought okay well this is this is it this is our next project and so we you know we sort of put it together quite quickly because Man on Wire happily for us at that time a sort of in the ether, you know, sort of it was theatrically released. I think it got an Oscar nomination around the time that we were financing Project Nim. So that came together very quickly and, and, and sort of like there's a little bit of a proof that actually, you know, su- su- success begets success and that's the way it should work. So I kind of felt, okay, great. I, you know, I've got, I've bought, I, not only do I have a, a, a new great project, but with, with, with James, but I also have, I sort kind of fundamentally bought myself some time. Uh, we were able to do do very good deals on that film, to be honest. And so actually, you know, financially, you know, I wasn't definitely wasn't in the money from Man and Wire at all. Um but but Mim kind of enabled me to sort of get going really. And so at that point I sort of started to sort of get serious and develop a slate. And actually you know, I had my little company, Red Box Films, at the time. It was really just me and um I wanted to partner. I wanted to find a home for Redbox Films. I did not want to sort of create an infrastructure because I wanted to keep doing feature docs fairly singularly. And at that time the market was very different. So I thought maybe I'll do one a year, two a year, three three maybe. And um John Batzek, uh who I'm sure you you're aware of, uh he was, uh, he's a great, great feature doc producer. I'd got to know him a bit during the man on wire process. He'd given me some advice and I went to see him. And we sort of discussed whether whether we could sort of form some sort of alliance whereby I could kind of keep my company and mm-hmm. we wouldn't have a formal arrangement. I, I would have an office in his office and I would sort of be able to draw on his infrastructure a bit. We would partner on projects individually as, as we saw fit. Or not, and but it sort of gave me a home, and it gave me people to work with, and it gave me great people to work with. And, and an apparatus, uh, yeah, the, yeah, a little bit of a an apparatus, and it worked. It, it worked. It worked for me for a good five years. We did, you know, we did Project Nim together. We did The Imposter together. We did Sugar Man together. We did a number of other other films, maybe seven films or something, and and you know and yeah, it was great and I really enjoyed it and I like working with those guys. And at a certain point I sort of thought, I want something else. I am you know, ready to sort of probably ready to have a, a proper shop of my own, build an infrastructure, maybe, you know, create a business that might have some value one day. And and that sort of coincided with me, you know, Sugarman's success. And Sugarman, you know, I was actually out in LA for the Academy Awards for Sugarman and my co- cousin. And uh, Jonathan Chin, who's who had been a showrunner in L.A., a nonfiction showrunner for the past X number of years. um, He actually suggested that we partner and it just felt like a good idea. You know, he he wanted to change his career a bit and sort of come a bit my way. And I wanted to go a tiny bit his way. And, you know, this kind of coincided with this sort of emerging boom of premium nonfiction that he and i could see i mean you know that, that, that there were all sorts of new players emerging on the scene this was at the beginning of netflix beginning to become uh a commissioner you know yep. of content yep. And, yep. And, and 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 other places and in fact we got our first big commission from microsoft from a studio set up set up by microsoft that was fairly short-lived mm-hmm. um and it was, it was called Xbox Entertainment Studios. And the idea was that, you know, if you had an Xbox, you could watch a whole bunch of great sort of content within, you know, sort of that kind of felt somehow relevant. Um, so we actually got a, a series of a six part series uh, order, like almost before we'd actually formed our company, Lightbox, I think it was, mm-hmm. it was before we formed our company. And that was kind of again amazingly fortuitous you know given how hard it is to you know get yeah, a yeah. big series order
0: so 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 rewinding i want to i want to i want to sort yeah. of parse that even further a, a bit which is like do you have a vision at what point uh, like what are the pivot points in your vision from sort of making individual films to okay i need to think like a you know a producer or um you know a a producer with a slate or i need to think like a mogul where this can be sort of like monetized further or like what for you as a i guess both a because it's a fascinating role of the producer right like you have to be both the kind of you have to rely on your taste and your instincts and yet at the same time you're navigating the business end of the business. So like what are the pivot points for you in terms of like and, and I guess you've articulated them, but like did you have a clear vision early on when you're hooked up with Batzick in the aftermath of Man on Wire? When you're when you when you're sitting down with Jonathan, like how clear is the vision or how much of it is just the cards that you're dealt with? No,
1: it's 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 never a clear vision. It's it's if, if it's a vision at all, it's definitely a hazy one. Mm-hmm. I mean I suppose you know in a way you know I guess the best way to sort of try and describe what's driven me a little bit is just as much as possible instinct and what feels good um and and also a little bit impatience or frustration and then you know it it gets hard it gets hard for that sustain that you know to sustain mm-hmm. you know you you know you, yep. with the feature doc you know there's this kind of incredibly high bar and i yep. would say it's only getting higher you know yep. and you kind of you know it's difficult to kind of make a feature doc and for it not to sort of get in the convers- into the conversation yep 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 in in the in the way that you hope and dream that it that it might and you know that's not ultimately what it should all be about it, it's got to be about other stuff right because otherwise you'd go crazy and well, um, you can't control so, it you
0: can't control it you know what i mean at the end of the day you can do the work on. but like how it enters into the world it's suddenly like it's no longer yours it's you know
1: but yeah i mean certainly the kind of going into lightbox you know there was a little bit of a vision and mm-hmm. it was a bit of it was kind of a little bit about yeah as well as being a sort of creative producer and i'll never not be one that is fundamentally what gets me out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, and I know Jonathan did too, wanted to sort of exercise a different muscle in my brain, which was a bit like the business muscle, you know, what is the sort of intersection between what I know and this other thing, which I'd always, you know, you always as a producer to some degree are thinking about um, because you're dealing with money and budgets and the commercial side of things. But, is is there a way to kind of build a creative company that feels like something that we could be proud of, you know, uh, and the, 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 where we're we're producing content at, at a certain, I hate that word, but we're I, I hate I hate that word too. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah, we're producing you know projects at a certain scale, in yep. a certain at a certain volume without without compromising it, you know. Yep. That's the sort of needle that we've been trying to thread and creating a company that can have some scale and maybe some value in the world, but actually is known for making great work and, you know, and and can be have that sort of, you know, that's like kind of boutique vibe to it that, you know, uh, you know, people want to come and work here because they know that they're going to be supported in doing great work. That is incredibly rewarding to me, I have to be honest
0: well, and it's it's a it's it's a fascinating you know a couple of things that you said in there that I want to lock into is, you know, I think many of the films that you made in the kind of independent film journey, you know, um, are what produced this the opportunities that all of us are, you know, in this business and in this space now are are benefiting from, right? It's the success of those films that, like, sort of open Netflix's eyes and open the Amazons, you know, and and Hulu and all the places that are, you know, producing all of this work now, where it's like people want to watch these. These are entertaining. This this you know, and so your um, trajectory from. These kind of handmade individual things to like. What's a vision for a company that's you know servicing this you know kind of market of or or not even market but like appetite for fascinating nonfiction and how do you build a a home and a place that's going to magnetize people? Um, and it's and you know if you as you've articulated over the course of you know today you have hit these phases repeatedly in your life and in your career where it's like, okay, I've done that. Now, what am I going to kind of conjure next? And what, you know, what's the next, what's the next phase of this? So it's, it's inspiring to hear your trajectory.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. It's, it's, it's always about, for me, it was always just not about sitting still and doing the same thing. Um, And I think, you know, that probably is another, motivating factor for me, and and I wouldn't describe it exactly as a vision, but it's something I know about myself. It's just like, I'm not going to be happy just to do the same thing over and over again, whether it's, you know, just sort of being on the sort of the feature doc treadmill, or just, you know, thinking differently about form, you know. Uh, I want to be trying to innovate a little bit, in, in in what I do you know um trying to sort of push the form a tiny bit i mean you know uh, it, not saying you always do that you know certainly when you're running a company at a certain scale you know some things are just probably and you kind of have to get settled for that some things may be just a bit more quotidian you mm-hmm. know, sure. it's 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 a fine but line as long as 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 long as there's sort of stuff in my orbit and, and I'm very happy to say I feel there's plenty that mm-hmm. excites me, that gives us the opportunity to work in a different way, that work, work with a different director, with a slightly different idea about how to approach the form. That is exciting to me. Uh, so yeah.
0: Great. Um, I want to. I want to. F- I want to finish with one question, which is, you know, you've seen. This the evolution of nonfiction filmmaking from a number of different vantage points over the course of your career, and and now you're in the current one where you're managing this you know uh, big enterprise that's doing this diverse array of stuff. What do you from the from where you're sitting now? What's the future of nonfiction? What do you say?
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 incredibly hard to say. I mean I am by nature an optimist, and I. And I do feel that nonfiction has this incredibly bright future. Um, I think that the the audience for, I'm going to use that word again, content has sort of been awakened to the possibilities of nonfiction in a way that has never happened before. Mm-hmm. And that audience is not going away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we are going through a, a, a Pretty volatile patch at the moment in terms mm-hmm. of the market. Lots of big tectonic plates shifting, uh, a lot of consolidation, a lot of uncertainty about the way that, particularly, I guess, the world of streaming is going to unfold and who the winners and losers are going to be. And, you know, but in amongst that, I basically sit here feeling a bit smug if I'm totally honest, about the fact that I'm a producer, you know, and that there are going to be, and and with a a producer, I guess, with a track record. And, you know, I I think, I think, you know, there are just going to continue to be opportunities. And one opportunity may go away, but another will emerge. So I think in terms of the sort of, the market, I think, I think, I think we're going to be fine. Uh, I mean, in terms of, Documentary itself and the form, I slightly worry in 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 a way. I mean, I sort of see this kind of interesting sort of bifurcation. You know, on the one hand, there are these films that are being made and supported for awards. You know, if you look at if you look at the kind of Oscar uh, films, you know, the films that are kind of the runners and writers. You know, some of them are highly commercial. But very many of them are sort of not at all quite yeah. uncom- uncompromising pieces of work from, you know, visionary directors, and I'm very encouraged by that. But mm-hmm. it, it's really only a very small part of the story. That I think actually the market is sort of moving a little bit in the other direction. You know, it wants much more obviously commercial fare, and we're sort of the kind of vagaries of the sort of risk averse buyers comments have come to the fore at that point and they're like what is the last tree that fell in the forest yep. and i'll have that and yep. and and i think that does produce a certain kind of flattening of content and and i i'm very hopeful i i like to have quite an eclectic slate you know i don't want to just do be doing true crime i want to be doing bit of this bit of that bit of the other and i have a sort of few projects that are like are, don't necessarily feel obviously commercial, but might, might end up being so because they're just great stories. And I would put Sugar Man and Man and Wire into those categories. You 100%. Know? Those are sort of little, little stories that are actually became big stories. You know they, yep. they, they, you know, they went on that journey and actually they went on that journey as a result of the sort of traditional theatrical release, you know, in the hands of great distributors who yep. understood yep. how to put them build... Word of mouth on those films, films that were not in, in obviously easily marketable, and um, and you know I, I wonder what would have happened were I making a Sugar Man now. You know, what would what would would, 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 would it even get been? made? Would
0: it even yeah, get made you know, now? You I, know, and it's 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 so hard but, to kind of cut through cut through the the um, the gatekeepers.
1: Yeah, would it get made? I mean, I think it probably would get made, but would it just get lost in the kind of Walmart? Of content, and you know I mean, you know we I worked with Sony Pictures Classics on that film in the u s and those guys were on their game with that film you know they they nailed it they they it opened quite softly, you know it was a tough film to market. how do you market a film about a about a a rock singer that no one's ever heard of that most people thought had died, and you know it's like it's a and I'm not sure they initially understood quite how to market it, but what they did was they believed in it. And they had the kind of leverage to sort of ensure that the exhibitors, when they needed them, just held the film. You know, I think they held it on 25 screens or whatever, and they sort of waited for their moment and they... And they built the word of mouth and they had a bit of good luck with 60 minutes doing a piece. And they expanded the film at that point and, and suddenly they it had gone from a, you know, a failure to a success. And, you know, that you can't, I don't think you can do that on street, on a streaming service. You know, you do that, that's just good old fashioned distribution, you know.
0: Well, and it's 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 sort of patience and particularity and love in terms of bringing it out. Whereas you know, oftentimes in in the streaming world, it becomes a very quick popularity contest. Does this hit? Is it broadly accessible? And sort of what sticks? And and that's the kind of that's the double edged sword of this inundation, this flood of. And, and, and fascination with and, and audiences for nonfiction, it becomes so much stuff. It's very hard to kind of cut through and capture the world's attention. Yeah, and, yeah. well, it,
1: it's, it's very hard to curate on a streaming service. Right. I think some, some streamers are better than others at, at real curation. But at the end of the day, there's a little bit of a blunt instrument that needs to work, which is kind of called the algorithm or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, in the end, it yeah becomes, becomes harder, particularly when there's so much out there. It's just so much. Um, very hard to cut through. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's a mixed picture for me. I mean, I sort of... I'm hoping that the sort of theatrical documentary isn't a sort of dying art form, but I worry that it might be a little bit. I think there will always be exceptions. I'm not saying for a minute that it was ever an easy approach. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know there have only ever been a sort of handful of docs every maybe several a year that have just cut through theatrically. Um, maybe not even that, maybe one or two uh, and had real sort of proper success theatrically. So, you know, may, may, but but I, I, you know, whether that will continue, I, I, even that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, But I don't know, maybe in the end we have to accept that the streaming model serves the audience better and serves most documentaries better. I think I think that the truth is that there are very few docs that really, really do justify the big screen experience. But I would fight tooth and nail to preserve the theatrical experience for those few films, you know, so.
0: It's it's a I think it's a beautiful note to end on um, because I, you know, share all of the same, you know, hopes and passions you do and also, you know, sort of concerns and constraints and also, you know, similar opportunities. And so it's, and I've been, you know, such an admirer of you and your work and the way you have navigated it and reinvented yourself, you know, sort of time and again over the years. So I was really... You know, so looking forward to having this conversation and really more than anything else, I hope that you and I have the chance to work together on something because I'd absolutely love to do it.
1: Yeah, I I would love that, too. And, you know, thank you so much sir. I've really enjoyed it. You've been far too kind to me. Uh, So if you do have me back, as you threaten to do, you, you feel free to be. To interrogate me more and, and and be a bit less kind i know i, no, I, I, I love it man
0: i'm a fan i'm a fan like i'm a fan first <laughs> appreciate <so>. it <laughs> thank you so much simon really appreciate your time all right take care take care bye-bye thank you to simon chin for sharing his time and expertise with us today and thank you to all the filmmakers for whom he's produced brilliant work and thank you to james carroll for the theme music see you next time on the dangerous art with the documentary the dangerous art of the documentary is a tillerman films production executive producers are tiller and fitz our producer is jacob miller music by Zydepunk. the show is executive produced and distributed by jake brennan and brady sadler for double elvis productions thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe